0: Hey there and thanks for tuning in to Squash Radio. My name is Connor Malley and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squash Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squash player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squash player is I've also made Squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are, I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating passionate and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it. And if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. In this episode, we connect with Gilly Lane who has been at the peak of squash in the United States for over 20 years. After graduating from the University of Pennsylvania, being an All-American, All-Ivy, and MVP all four years, the professional tour was calling. Gilly answered by breaking into the top 50 on the world tour. He also represented Team USA on several occasions, helping win gold medals and securing their highest world-ranking finish of number six. During the next phase of his career, Gilly bridged his playing experience into coaching, returning to coach both Team USA and his alma mater, taking them to new heights, setting a program record with a number two season finish in the college ranks. In this episode, we also take a deep dive on leadership, team culture, and the various paths he's taken along the way. Gilly, at his core, is a true competitor but easily wins people over with his passion, enthusiasm, and great sense of humor. We had a blast doing this interview, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Squash Radio fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and this is getting hard to say because I have so many favorites within Squash World, but Gilly joining me today is definitely in that camp of one of my favorite people in Squash World, I'm always excited to see him. We're going to talk on a variety of subjects, but the common theme here will be the red, white, and blue. Now, Gilly from Philly, welcome to the show. Connor, thanks. Excited
1: to be here. I was joking with you last week when I got your text. I, I got the call. I got the call. I felt like I was being summoned from the uh, the bullpen to close out the game in the ninth inning, and uh, I, was, I was super excited. No, but I've enjoyed um, listening to the podcast and Love what you're doing, and it just feels great to be on here. Given you know when we first met in 2007, really got started getting to know each other uh, with Team USA, and and seeing how you've grown over the years and what you're building, and and your enthusiasm remains the same in the sport. So it's
0: phenomenal, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and as I told you, like if I could do anything right now, it would be snapping my fingers. And I've interviewed everyone, right? It's really hard to. Uh, to do it. So I'm so excited. And you've been on top of my mind to try and do this. So I'm glad we found the time. And, you know, speaking of which, here it is in January, and the college season would be in normally in full swing. I don't think even if you wanted to, we could find time during this period, because you're the head men's coach at the University of Pennsylvania. So you know, given that, I'd love to kind of give a little bit of a state of the union of where we are within the sport of squash. And one of the big announcements that just came out literally yesterday, was Dave Talbot retiring from Yale squash? What does that do to the ecosystem of college squash? Well, for sure. I mean, it's just an unusual
1: year. You know, if you if you think of anyone in the squash world, and I've now been in it for a really long time, I mean, to think no squash during January month, I don't know when the last time we didn't have squash in my life in January, it probably would, would have been 10 years old. So you know, you're, you're looking at 25 years of squash in January, and here we are. And obviously, with everything that's going on in, in a COVID world, the CSA has had to uh, cancel our season and cancel the championships for the 2020-2021 year, which is really unfortunate as I feel that the CSA is pushing in, in, su- in the right direction and, and inspiring yeah. so many people. And then you have uh, yesterday the announcement that you know, Dave Talbot, one of the legends of our game, you know, not just in college squash, but in squash in the US in general. You're just like, oh my gosh, what else is gonna happen next? I mean, and and so, you know, first off, in terms of DT, as we all know him, I wanna congratulate him on on an unbelievable career, thirty-eight years. He's inspired so many. He's touched so many lives. He for me is one of the people in the game that when I was a junior, you knew their name right off the bat. And it's coaches like that it's coaches like Bob Callahan it's people like that that you know who had that long history within college squash one of the cool things is about DT is just what everyone says about him and the legacy that he's leaving I don't think you're going to have anyone really say a bad word about him and um, his players loved him and you know and the one thing I have always appreciated is that you know I didn't go to Yale but he always treated me as one of his guys and he still does to this day. And, you know, I, I can't thank him enough for being uber supportive for me when I was playing. But then obviously when I made that transition to coaching, I mean, he's, I mean, he's just, he's turned into a really great friend and, and obviously we compete against each other. But, you know, what he's done accomplishes what we, sh- as a young coach, what we shoot for, you know, in terms of the CSA, obviously we had really good momentum.
0: Can I pause quickly on that? You know, cause as, as I'm talking about this, it's like, it really is sort of sinking in you know, you kind of hear the news and it starts percolating like the impact there. And what do you think, or what's a story and memory that you have of of DT?
1: Well, I mean, in 2006, I was a senior at Penn. Well, first off, when I was getting recruited by Dave, uh, actually, let's just put it this way, my testing scores weren't the highest. (laughs) And Yale was one of the schools that interested me. And one of the things that I always remember about Dave is how honesty was with me. And how honest he was with me early in the process, and I don't think he wanted to say this, but he told me he said, "Gil, I don't think it's going to work out here." And when you're 17 years old and you don't know how to take that, and I didn't take it as a bad thing, but the one thing that over the years I look back at it now, and, and him telling me that was just being so upfront, so super honest, but also having care for me. Yeah. And he shot it straight to me, and that was that was phenomenal. That's all you could ask for, and, and I think. It's hard to understand that at 17. It's hard to understand that I was, I was one or two. I was, I think, two in the country at the time. Uh, Nick Charles and I were kind of back and forth at one and two. And it was kind of hard for me to understand that. But at the same time, his honesty and his, like, he just kind of wanted me to understand, hey, this isn't going to work out. You should spend your time in other places. And, and we talked about that years later. And he always joked that, you know, oh, I should have fought for you a little harder. And I said, I said, the, the best thing that you ever did for me was just being open and honest with me. So that was one thing. And then when we played them my senior year, you know, Penn hadn't beaten Harvard, Princeton, Yale. Gosh, I I don't know. I mean, it was years. I mean, 30 years. And at the time, our coach and one of my favorite people, he's one of the best coaches I've ever had in my entire life. My mentor and uh, Craig Thorpe Clark said if we had beaten one of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, that he would shave his mustache off. Now, if anyone knows Craig, that mustache is Craig like I've never really seen Craig without a mustache and it's funny now because I kind of have a sort of semi-mustache right now as we're as we're kind of having this conversation but I think Dave caught wind of it and so we we ended up beating Yale at Yale in in our dual match 6-3 and Dave to his credit I mean Dave's an unbelievable competitor and he's very competitive but he's got after the match it's just he's Dave you know and so Craig went into the bathroom shaved his mustache off came out Dave had a fake mustache that he put on and they took a picture together. And oh, you know, Yale man. ended up getting the
2: revenge at later in the year at the Nationals and they beat us the national championships in the five four. But I think that just kind of spoke to his character that we had come in, we'd won a match in
1: December, and, and you know, we'd kind of made this thing with our coach and and he'd caught wind and, you know, he played along with it. And I had a lot of respect for him at, with that. And but he's just always has his players' best interest at heart and as a young coach, that's what we strive to do on a daily basis. And but you know, when you when you have a, a legend of the game go 38 years, I mean, almost four decades. You know, you, you say, "Oh, you're going to play Yale? Oh, who's the coach? Dave Talbot." You know, you you don't think of
0: anything else. So yeah, it's going to be really. This gets said often, but it's because it's men. It's like those are tough shoes to fill. <laughs> And it's going to be an interesting cascading impact on the game. But I'm going to take this opportunity also to tell my quick Dave Talbot story because it meant a lot to me and my team and where I played at Denison, which was a club team. And we had a high caliber team that we were within the top 10. And so we were competing against UPenn, Princeton, Yale. And as you know, you alternate home and away. (laughs) Well, being from Ohio, we really had to like, you know, we're pretty much always away. But Dave Talbot, and Yale and the Naval Academy were two of the teams that came out to Ohio, which was just like deeply meaningful to us and the team because no one else was competing against that caliber of school. And so the fact that Dave Dave would come out there with his team and this, it's a lot dependent on the coach and where they're willing to direct their team. And it was sort of embarrassing because we we didn't have the best of courts. And it was one was a convertible racquetball court. So here I am. We're Alternating between the Brady Center, which is one of the best in the country, and then going down to like knocking on the glass to kick off the racquetball <laughs> players that are going on, Incredible. asking my competitor to be like, "Can you help slide this board?" <laughs> and I'm bringing on the tin. So it's interesting days, but that just shows that it didn't matter. Dave saw the sort of greater good and what it meant, and I wonder to kind of close that out is it's hard to encapsulate his impact on the game, but does anything kind of Wanna one word or one sentence kind of ring out for you.
1: Well, I just said his just the way anyone who knows DT just knows that he's a fun-loving guy, and you know, he's he's a competitor, but he also has a huge heart. And he's, I think, I never got a chance to play for him, but I have a lot of friends that did play for him, and they wouldn't change that experience for anything in the world. And and when you have, you know, one of the biggest things is, you know, in your four years, we always say that you want to love your experience, and you're going to spend time with that coach more so than any advisor or any teacher and that's really important and I think the guys and girls that played for him loved every second of it and you know I'm gonna miss the hug the pre-match hug you know before we play Yale And but I also know that he's one that's gonna always contribute to the game so he might be retiring from Yale but I can see him still being heavily involved in making sure that the game is progressing in the right way yeah. and he's gonna do it and he does it with a smile and in the way that we know DT does. And, you know, I'm just, what I wish that we had is, it was we had a different way to celebrate what he's brought to the sport. You know, obviously COVID has been incredibly hard and and I think, you know, in the future we'll celebrate that. Hopefully we'll get a chance to celebrate him and, and his accomplishments and what he's done for the sport in an appropriate
0: way uh, in front of a lot of people and, and uh, give him the credit he deserves. Couldn't agree more. And yeah, I think we're all looking for that time when uh, events and coming together to celebrate becomes possible so i want to shift focus on one of your red white and blues and talking about your team and is it fair to say you have the eye on building a national championship team i think it's definitely fair to say and if so when did because that's sort of a to say that goal out loud must be kind of scary and i wonder when did you start aiming towards that
2: well, for sure. I think I think you know me better than most. Is I'm very competitive. I definitely want to succeed and we, I want to win. I want to, you know, coming back to Penn in, in 2013, our women at the time were top with one or two usually, and, and, and the men were in second division and had just kind of, we bounced them back into eighth. And, and at the time, it was about creating a really good culture and rebuilding the culture. And, and culture isn't really important for me. Um, I'm a big team sports guy, but as we all know, squash is the individual sport, but in college we coach it as a group. And building that camaraderie, building building a culture that one, kids want to be a part of, two, that's gonna continue to grow in the in the correct way, and then building a vision for the future. When I came back, my first kind of goal was just to kind of get the maybe the men's team back into kind of the mix of things. You know, when I was playing it wasn't as competitive, I don't think, as it is now. I mean, the the level of play is just is on a whole nother level. And, keeps and, going and, up, keeps yeah. going up, and and I'm I'm so happy that I play, played in the era that I did, and I'm not playing now. I can tell you that right now. So at the time, really, it was just trying to get back into that top eight, and you know, kind of start building from there. And then as we were able to get some good recruits year after year, and it was like, okay, we're continuing to press the top teams. And in my mind, you know, Penn did everything for me as an undergraduate. It took an opportunity. It took a chance on me. It took a chance on me to come to the school and and be a part of the community. Craig Thorpe Clark did such a great job at bringing us together as a team. My teammates, I still speak to them every week, the guys that I played with, right? So if I had the checkbook, I would open up the checkbook and write that check back to the school (laughs) if I could. But right now I'm in a position where I get to give back to the place that was so special to me. And so that's kind of the energy that I wanted to bring. And I know this is a long answer, but but we had to do a lot of things to get back and create that atmosphere that the best student athletes in the entire world wanted to be a part of. And that took some time and we took some hits and we got knocked down. But the one thing that we can't deny is that the student athletes that have been part of this stretch and part of this run that I've been so fortunate enough to coach, they've put the time and they put the effort in and they spent the time building the culture to what we, I'm not me, we as a group that's Myself, that's Jack, that's all the assistant coaches that have been through during that time that we have wanted the administration, the strength and conditioning, the um, mental strength coaches. You know, that's a group collective effort. And the one thing I'm most proud of is the student athletes and how they've bought in and they've really created a culture that aspires to win a national championship. That being said, we haven't done it yet. And we have incredible competition that we are competing against. We have incredible student athletes that are at other schools that are the best players in the world that are representing their universities. And so each day we got to figure out how to get better. We got to figure out how we come together even more as a group, how we push each other, but also how to reflect on the things that we need to do better to be better. And that's a hard thing for anyone to do on a daily basis. And so we're continuing to work at that and You know, we feel like we're in a really good position right now, but we still have a lot of things that we need to do in in order to get to that, you know, the pinnacle, the top, the peak. Yeah. I
0: mean, this is, it's such a process. And I know you uh, for a long time, I mean, you are a very intelligent person and you have intelligent plus hustle and grind, which is what I think are some key ingredients to success. But I'm curious because I know You have both your lived experiences in terms of being on a team, and also then as competing as an individual. But I know you've also then acquired other information in multiple different ways. But what I want to ask is, I'm curious about when the rubber hits the road, and as you're trying to build the team culture, what did you get wrong that you've then changed your mind at? Oh, I got a lot. I got a lot wrong. You know, I think
1: there's a saying: the best players don't make the best coaches, and the best coaches aren't always the best players. Right. And so my motto when I played was always to work really hard to be physically stronger than a lot of my opponents. And one thing that I could control was being in shape and doing the right things off the court. There were plenty of people that were more talented than me with the racket, but they weren't going to beat me on heart and desire. And, um, you know, that will to succeed, that just wanting to be great. Right. I always wanted that. When I first got to Penn and I was promoted to head coach. The team at the time was the most talented team that we've ever had. And I coached them like I wanted to be coached. And that was a gigantic mistake. It was a gigantic mistake. And you have 16 great in you know athletes that all need to be coached different ways. And the way they see the game sometimes is not the way I see the game. And the way in which they're going to be motivated is not how I'm going to be motivated. People who know me know what motivates me. And I'll kind of leave it at that. But that doesn't motivate other people. And so that first year I had to take a really big look at myself in the summer after the season, as, as we kind of under, we actually underachieved. There was a lot of press. There was a lot of talk about, Oh, this is the next team coming through. And I think we finished seven or eight and we were looking to finish kind of crack into that top five. I could be totally wrong, but I had a big look at myself. And then I, I said, okay, we got to, we got to change some things around and I got to change how I speak to certain people. and and that self-reflection was really good. And then we really looked at, you know, inspiring each person individually and then how we're gonna inspire them collectively and bringing them together. And, and you know, in any team sport, right? It, like in soccer, you know, you can take somebody out and plug somebody in and all of a sudden if they just do their job in terms of the whole- Magic machine, Exactly. Yeah. Well, we need to inspire 16 players or 17 players individually, but yeah. then have them buy into your core message, right?
0: Quick question on that. Like, because I know us being players, and look, I have the mentality, you have the excellence, but was this natural to you? Just, or how did you come that you were doing it wrong? How did you come to understand that that wasn't quite working? Just communication with the players and then being open and you ask them?
2: Being open and honest. And I think the
1: transparency for me is huge. You know, I think you want, you believe as a coach, you have to believe in your players and you have to trust what they're saying. And if you instill that trust, to be able to have an open dialogue, you're going to grow. Some of the things that you, at the end of the day, it's as the coach, it's your final decision, right? You got to make the decision whether players like it or players don't. However, how you handle that process and how you go through that and how you communicate that message is key. And, you know, sometimes you have to have some conversations that are uncomfortable and that's okay. However, if growth happens because of that, you're going to find yourself in a, in a really good situation. And I think after that summer, we kind of reset everything. We focused on instead of just saying, oh, we got to be better this year, let's, let's focus on us uh, internally. And we did that. The culture was already really good. The boys were really tight. But in terms of that mentality of taking it to the next level, there was a built, the confidence was continued to build. There was the confidence in each other and then the trust in each other as a teammate, knowing that. All the guys could trust each other and and they are pushing each other to be better on a daily basis and then I think that as that happened uh they they continue to grow and we're now where we are now, and then that's obviously we get great players, but at the same time there's a lot more that goes into it,
0: you know, and we work really hard on that, it sounds like one of the key ingredients which is you know rubber hitting road is how to have uncomfortable conversations so What is sort of, uh, it sounds like you've had a few. (laughs) What is the kind of, if you're coaching me or someone else, and you're like, I'm about to have an uncomfortable conversation, I don't know how to do it. What's my 90 second coaching break? Listening, listen, let the player talk and just listen. I think listening is huge. It's something that
1: I've had to learn how to do. I think anyone who knows me knows I'm pretty chatty, but listening and just kind of taking things in and digesting that and then coming back, I think is really important. You have to listen to the people around you, take that information in because there's not one correct way to look at things. And, you know, there's not one way to coach squash. There's not one way to coach one sport. There's there's so many different ways. And the beauty of our sport is that it's so international. Yeah. And there's so many different cultures that play, right? And it's taught so differently across the world. So it would be a negative for me if I didn't listen to somebody or to listen to a new concept or a new idea and, and keep an open mind because, you know, I'm still growing as a coach and I'm still growing as, as a person every day, 100%. And so listening has been one of the biggest things as a coach is just taking it in, not reacting right away and trying to then come up with a solution that is going to allow your
0: student athlete to be in the best position possible to succeed. I love it. One of the things that I'm curious about from your coaches have to are responsible for so much, and let's break it down to on court responsibilities and off court responsibilities. Because I think there's often a misperception of how much time you can allocate to be on court to develop a player, right? So you're really building the system and trying to implement that, right? Like you're guiding the ship, for sure. But I'm curious with aspirations towards eventually a national championship. What's your strategy? And don't give the secret sauce away, but, you know, what's the kind of, how do you think about the regular season versus going into national championships? We just think of one match at a time. I think the
1: years that we we got in trouble is we're thinking too long-term instead of short-term, the short-term progress. Focused on the individual growth, making sure that, like, take the matches out of it, just make sure that the student-athlete is in a great place mentally. They're in a great place academically those two things. And they're a great play socially in terms of their friend group and how they feel on a daily basis. Because if they come into the squash center in with a smile on their face, they're going to train better, they're going to play better. And I think that all of those things are factors in your success, right? It's also about, for me, surrounding myself with the best people possible, right? Making sure I'm, I'm a total believer in should have the best and the brightest
0: in every place. So we have I have such an unbelievable support group around me. Yeah, spell that out cuz I think people don't quite know all the other elements that go into it. It's we look at the players on court, but then it's the support team that really drives it. Yeah, I have an incredible coaches that I work with with Jack and with Stuart who are incredibly
1: knowledgeable. You know, it's fun going into work every day to work with those two and and I love it. You know, I I absolutely love it. We have a great, incredible support staff. We have a great trainer who I talk with every day who I totally trust what she's doing. So I don't have to worry about that. And I know that she's giving me the straight answer every time. And she also has the trust of the players. So they know they're getting her ultimate you know, care every day and gives the tough love too, which I love, you know, which, which they need. I have the best strength and conditioning coaches that I could ever ask for. And I allow them to do what they do because we have trust in each other, and we shoot ideas over to each other all the time. I have the you know the best ad that looks over squash that promotes the positivity and, and has belief in the kids, and we have an unbelievable mental performance coach that has taken a special uh, liking to our team and has spent so much time with our athletes. All those things, you know, ten years ago, thirteen years ago, you know, I wouldn't say that we had. And then that puts so much pressure on you as an individual to be great in all of those areas. Totally. So allows me to be able to work on, to, to be able to do the coaching, game plan, make sure that as a unit, we are unified. And I would always say to everyone, surround yourself with the best, have coffee or tea or when you have meetings, don't have meetings that are, get out of your comfort zone in those meetings, whether it's go take a walk. Go have coffee, don't have the meeting. You know, obviously we live in this COVID world now. So, you know, the face to face is non-existent really. Um, and it's a lot of Zoom, but get out of your office, you know, be on the go, be active, and then do a lot of self-reflection in terms of how you personally
0: can be better every day because there's always something that we can work on. So along those lines of building a team, you just kind of described what it is in terms of once people get into your team, I'm sure. There's a lot of questions you get asked about, and this is top of mind for you, like you need to recruit talent. And it goes both ways. And the kind of question that I'm curious about is, and you can pick whichever orders, what's the question you get asked all the time? But what's the real question you wish they were asking you?
1: The question I get asked all the time is, (laughs) what SAT mark do I need to, (laughs) to get into the school? I think the question that I'd love to be asked is what attributes do you put at the top of your list to be a part of your team? And what's in in terms of the culture of your team, what type of student athletes have helped you build where you are today? I think the one thing, you know, great players make great coaches, okay? And, And that's for sure. The players are the ones that are doing the work and they're the ones on the court and they're the ones playing in big situations and they're the ones studying at school and they have a lot going on in their lives. And I would be the first to say that I've been surrounded and I'm fortunate to be around incredible student athletes. I feel so lucky to coach the players that I've coached in the last seven years. And it's coming on my first cycle of starting to have kids come back and it's crazy making me feel old. But I think one of the biggest things would just be asked, like, what attributes are you looking for to add to your culture? And, you know, the biggest thing for me is just hard work. If you're a hard worker, we love that. That is something that we love to have people that put the time and put the effort in, have that desire. They want to be great, but they want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And for me, that's what you know being a part of the team is all about, is like fighting for the guy next to you and having their back when they have your back in tough times. And um, I go back to that SAT thing is that in society right now, we put such an emphasis on this number. And it really doesn't actually say who you are as a person or actually kind of project how successful you're going to be in the future. It's a number in my mind that, okay, if if you just want to hit this number, is that all you want to do is just hit the bare minimum to get by? And what is that saying? For me as a coach, my job is to put student athletes in the best place to succeed when they graduate college. That first day that they graduate, they're ready to take on whatever they want to take on in the world. And a number does not necessarily hit that for what we're doing. It's about, you know, what are your values? Where did you come from? Continuing your family values throughout college, carrying those through, which is incredibly important to me. It's a longer topic than than probably have time to go into today, but also understanding what you're about to be a part of and how key your contribution is to the makeup of the entire process. And so those, that's what I wish we would talk about more and we would talk about kids in general, not just scores that
0: they're getting because scores don't correlate to actually who a person really is. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And it's a tough process both ways, right? This is literally about fit and who will fit into your team, your culture. And I think, it's an important part, and let's not diminish that, like, look, you, despite you wanting a potential athlete, if they don't hit certain benchmarks, your hands are tied. And I think that's the lesson also from Dave Talbot kind of saying that he would have wanted you. But let me kind of anchor this question, because you're a soccer player, and you're a tremendous athlete there. And I wonder, you know, squash is very different, that you don't have positions in terms of like, uh oh, my rock star goalkeepers graduating, I need a goalkeeper. But So when you're looking at your team culture of like who to how to build it, you know, with the lineup, what's your thought process in terms of who to target to go after?
1: You know, it's interesting. So I think it really depends on where you are in in terms of the building of your culture, right? So if you asked probably 10 coaches this question, I think you'd get a bunch of different answers. You can get the answer of like, we're just looking for the most talented student athletes in in the world. And, you know, at some point during your process, you are. So like, I'm not going to lie and say that early on, that wasn't what we were after. Obviously, we're after skilled and talented squash players to improve our team. Because at the end of the day, like you said, when you play squash, it's putting everyone in an order and just like go, right? And so you could argue that chemistry on a squash team is not as important as the skill in which your starting nine possess, right? I would agree and disagree to that. And I agree slightly just because there is a lot of skill involved and you need to position good players through the lineup. The one thing that I'm reading a great book called The Captain's Class right now. And it's just talking about, it's, it's, um, I'll get you the author in a second, but um, it is about why great dynasties have been great Mm. and athletic teams. And it is it talks about the captains. It talks about the leaders. It talks about the values that they instill, and and it's funny that one of the main things it talks about is is the captain isn't the person who you think it is. The captain, you know, what we think of is the the good looking one. He's you know he or she is very talkative. is very outspoken. It's the one that's always in the press. And it's, in actuality, it's the captains of all these great dynasties and great teams. Uh, these ten great teams that uh, the authors picked out, they kind of are just in the shadows a little bit from the public eye. They're the people that are in the dressing room really firing everyone up. They're the people that have the teammates back. They're not as outspoken in the media or the press, but they are the people that are there. They uphold all the values of the organization and the team. And you know they're the ones that sometimes go on to be great coaches. They might not be the most skilled players, but they're the ones that that really lead that organization in the right direction, and so one of the things that we've looked at, and as well, and you're just trying to quantify is, is how leadership affects the culture of the team, and, and I think it's a really important characteristic, and definitely one of the things that we look at now. Even though you might not have fifteen years ago chalked that up as attribute that you're really looking for in putting together a squash team, and it's so important to have positivity in training and each and every day because. For any college squash fan out there, you know that it's a long training season, but it's a very short uh, match season. And the match season is oh, really, really only two and a half months. And so it's really a sprint. So to have that positivity on a daily basis is huge. And you need the right student athlete to really fortify that message
0: and, you know, to everyone else. I would say it's a series of sprints, but it's such with little rest and recover. For sure. It's interesting. Just a lot of interval training. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, there's. A, um, are you familiar with the gentleman, uh, Simon Sinek? I'm not. Oh my gosh. You know, we definitely need, uh, and we'll do this offline of, in terms of like knowledge share and all that stuff. But the reason why uh, Simon Sinek, who's been just a, a core pillar of mine in terms of, you know, me and I consider performing in business, it's a sport to me and I got to be prepared. So he wrote a book called Start With Why. Like, why do you do anything? And is a really interesting mentality, but part of it is also trust. And so he's written, he studied, you know, the military is a really interesting aspect that everything you just described, literally life and death, right? Like you have to trust the person next to you. And he's like, how do you build trust? And military organizations are really, that's what they do. Right. And he's like, what's interesting, he's like, well, how do you know when you have trust and how long does it take to build is a question. He's like, you can't answer it. And I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, it's longer than seven days and it should take less than seven years. Right yeah anyway
1: for sure and uh and the author by the way is uh sam walker sam walker Walker. is the author yeah it's fascinating
0: we're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor so lee we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on squash radio And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash?
3: I I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations and i think squash radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront and i'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to and sponsoring this we're just uh, facilitating that
0: i think you nailed it is there anything else you you might want to add but i think you you nailed it
3: that is (laughs) that's exactly what i think (laughs) because i'm in like with hope i've met hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation but listening to that conversation you had with her, it just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It, it's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person they, hopefully they're gonna do that with me. I'm sure, cause I'm quite a private person. I'm not, a, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people. But when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at Junior Torments and. A lot of my juniors were top players in the country, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash.
0: That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Well, before we go into the next part, I feel like this is an appropriate time. We're kind of talking a little bit about advice. Yeah. And I'd like you to share, what's the best advice that you've been given? And I think it was specifically about from your dad.
2: Yeah, my, my, my
1: dad is one of my heroes and I feel incredibly fortunate to have the parents that I've had. Just to give you kind of background, my, my, mom, was, um, my mom was a world-class athlete. She was the captain of the uh, U.S. Women's Lacrosse National Team that won the world cup in 1983. And then she didn't make the team in 85. She had her firstborn, which I do take, I feel bad about that, you know? So I'll take that one on the chin. My dad was a lacrosse player, he played lacrosse at f and just, I couldn't have grown up in a, in a better environment. And they taught me everything. So I was very fortunate obviously to go to college and, you know, kind of play squash. Squash, the first time I played squash all year round was my freshman year of college. And I played other sports and and I, I'm a total sports junkie. And growing up, I remember, you know, always saying I wanted to play a professional sport and that was the dream. And so it was kind of get to every summer where you in college, we're like, what are you going to do this summer? Oh, I'm just going to train. I got to train. I got to get better. So I'll caddy in the mornings and I'll train in the afternoon. So that was that. And and my senior year I was sitting down with my dad and we we're just talking and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, if it's all right with you. And I felt like I owed that to my parents in that they had given me and provided so much for me in financially support, but just like, and never pushed. Like the only person that was pushing me was me. They never pushed me to do anything. The only thing that they ever said that you can't quit. If you started something, you'll finish it. But at the end of the season, then you can decide not to do it. But you've made a commitment for whatever, you know, you need to do that. So we sit down, and I think it was in the fall of my senior year. And he said, Well, what do you want to do? And I said, Well, if it's all right with you, I want to play professional squash. And he, again, he goes, If it's all right with me. I said, Yeah, it's all right with you. I feel like, you know, you've, you guys have provided me enough and, and a lot. And, you know, I just want to make sure. And he goes, Gil, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And, and he goes, You know, growing up, I didn't get a chance to travel the world. You're going to get a chance to travel the world. You can't go and, and work in a job and then say, Oh, you don't like it and come back to training. Like, you have to continue down this path that you're on. And I feel really lucky to be given that message because it allowed me to chase after my dream. It's funny, this is when you and I first met was when the first thing was chasing this this dream to be a part of the US national team, because that was what made my mom so happy. Like growing up, it was always an honor to play for your country. So like I wore one of her like old shirt, like I don't know how it fit her, but it like fit me when i played soccer that was under my jersey and so like and i never got to play at the world juniors because of my birthday so like chasing the senior national team thing was like a serious deal but to be able to have that advice and say hey you got to go after it you have to chase what you love is ultimately kind of brought me to where i am now and i don't think i have a job because i love i mean i love what i do i couldn't see myself doing anything else and that advice i always remember it like it was yesterday and just that confidence that my parents had in me. There was never one moment when I was on tour, uh, when I was losing money every year and I was living abroad where they were like, okay, when is this going to end? That was never in question. And and so that's something that I'll always appreciate from my parents and you know, just that support because we live in a competitive world where the expectation is you go somewhere for an education. Okay,
0: what are you going to make on the back end? Definitely words of wisdom. And I feel equally fortunate, not the same experience, but I mean, definitely, I was given that same opportunity. And that's why I feel, in an essence, a bit of a responsibility to try and do anything I can for others in that regard. I don't know what that means. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out. But whenever I can give, I try. And even that's just a, a quick phone call, text, or building systems and programs. For sure. <laughs> but along those lines, it's a great segue into Team USA. And I think that this has been just such a throughput for you in your career. And I think even going back to juniors, I didn't know that I didn't have that context again, because I kind of didn't really come onto the scene until 2007 in terms of understanding the the entire ecosystem. But it sounds like there might be an aspect of almost not achieving it then drove you more.
1: I think if anyone, anyone who knows me is kind of, this kind of like my motto <laughs> for, for everything, you know, not, not achieving When I don't do something or someone says that I can't do something, I want it more, for sure. And um, unfortunately, my birthday was August August 26th, which was really late. So I was only going to be able to play the individuals part of the World Juniors. They were being held in Pakistan at the time. I wasn't really sure if we were going to go. So that was all up in the air. So I didn't want to just go for just the individual portion. Because at the time, I really wasn't playing squash. All year around, I wasn't a squash player, I was just a, a guy who played squash. But probably you call me more of an athlete than a squash player. You know, the team I think that went was Chris Gordon, Joey Reho, Garnet Booth, Suleiman Salim At the time, Chris was already playing full time on the tour, so he was traveling all over the place. And that was definitely one of the things I wish I did because everyone asked me, What year did you play World Juniors? and then I said, I didn't, and then I missed out on the Pan-American team in Brazil, I think by two matches in a playoff in Detroit while I was in college. And that was tough. <laughs> you know, I've, um, So that definitely drove me more. And then obviously my first time competing with Team USA, you were there. You know, I had been in an under-23 program and a little bit that I just started. But you and I, we went down to Cuenca to ecuador and we won that which was incredible and then and then obviously headed off to denmark and and had an unbelievable finish there i mean probably my fault that we didn't go further i I lost that match to durback which at the time i just didn't think i i definitely didn't have the experience to go win that match but being a part of that team was
0: something that i always wanted to be a part of because i'd never done it yeah you know to give some context Quickly of Team USA, the way I kind of think of you is, I mean, you are you're just so integral to Team USA and the success of squash. But your experience comes from being a player, the coach. But you're also really mindful of this pipeline, right? Like you, you're like, hey, if we're not building for the future, and so I think that that really distinguishes because there have been people involved who come in, coach, and leave. But you're mindful of the entire pipeline. And one way I'd love for you to kind of bring up, and rivalry might not be the right way to say this, but you have an interesting relationship with Julian Illingworth, For sure. Well, you, you can't call it a rivalry
1: because when you lose to somebody like every time except for one, you just can't call it a rivalry. So yes, you can call it, you know, we were obviously competitors for a long time. You know, in juniors, he was always a year ahead of me. And he was always that guy from the West Coast that you never knew you didn't know about because at the time there weren't many players that weren't from the Northeast playing in the junior circuit. Also, I want to give a shout out to Jules because I think people forget that he's the best U S player we've ever had in the softball area male, excuse me. But he's the person that people, I don't know how they forget about. It's a name that we should celebrate more for what he's accomplished because what he accomplished is incredible. You know, 24 in the world with 10 national titles, you know, that's it's incredible. I mean, obviously, Amanda's Amanda's doing it on the other side, you know, at seven in the world. But Julian often gets forgotten. And I think people need to know his name and understand how good of squash player he was, an unbelievable athlete as well. So Jules and I and Chris, Gordon, you know, there was the three of us on tour and, and we kind of needed each other, right? We needed each other, not only as a friend thing, but, you know, when you're traveling, you know, you want those companions, you want kind of that team atmosphere. and And the three of us got really close and we were kind of, Three guys that had kind of made this commitment to playing and to really going after it, and not just kind of saying, "Hey, we're going to do it for six months and then we're going to hang it up." Um,
0: we really said, "Okay, we're going to make this a career and we're going to go after it." And, I think it was the first time. Correct me if I'm wrong. That this was the first time that's occurred in the softball era.
1: It could have been. I don't want to say anything that's not correct in terms of you know people before me. I just had no this you know I know people had given it goes, but I don't think that he had done it at the the length. That we had done it, you know, and so I felt like we were kind of creating a pathway for this next generation to come through. And, and it was it's our responsibility to really provide that information to the next group coming through. And the next group was like Todd and Chris Hansen. And you talk about not making the US team. I, I was always searching for that national championship and I'm runner-up four times. And I said this on a podcast with Jim Zug. and when Chris Hansen won his first nationals, I was so happy for him. Because it reminded me of me, because he was always behind Todd, and and you know, and kind of that, and I felt like that was me. And then Chris Gordon won his first Nationals against me, and then maybe I'm Mr. Second Place. I don't, I don't know, because you know, losing the National Finals last year to Harvard too, so uh, it, it drives me. But at the same time, it's a responsibility, and and the one thing that I I know that Todd and Chris have done really well is pass that down to the next generation. And I really, that's unbelievable that they've done that. But yeah, no, a couple of summers ago, Jules and I got to coach together at the academy. And it was incredible because I don't think he ever really gave into anything that he was working
0: on to me and maybe vice versa. Do you, do you, sorry, do you mean like giving in secrets of what you're doing? Or? Just what
1: he was doing and his coaching and his aspects. And I really understood then that week how he thought about the game. And I was like, God, I wish I knew that a decade ago,
0: you know, but. Um, what was an insight that kind of like you're like caught your attention?
1: It was just, we would talk and we had kind of, we, we had a lot of time together. We were staying at the dorms together at Trinity and um, you just get into conversations and you start asking questions that you wouldn't ask when you're competing against each other. So like when you, I was just like, you know, when you were playing against me, what would you think about, you know, like, where would you try to expose me and why? And then when you hear those answers, you're like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Right. And I'm like, oh, no wonder you drummed me every time we played, you know, and like, of course, I couldn't do that. Like, yeah, that's what I would do to me, too. You know, it's it, so but to hear it from his point of view is incredible. in the way he thought about the game, you, know, you saw him as this incredible athlete, but he thought about it in a great way. And the same way with Chris, you know, when you start asking them those questions, and you're not in that competitive environment anymore. It's really awesome to see how top athletes think on a daily basis and what they're thinking about.
0: I think Jules, I mean, I really enjoyed watching him play, right? Like, he was a gifted athlete, moved like a panther, great racket skills, but he understood the game at a different level. 100%. 100%. I was fascinated by that. Did you ever see the, I think it was Andre Agassi interview where he was describing how he broke Boris Becker down? I haven't seen that, but Opens one of my favorite books of all time. So it's interesting, again, this is a slight insight that those who are trying to, che- like you need every edge and every edge, even 1% difference or 2% difference in each area makes small incremental changes can make a big difference. For sure. And so Andre, he's been interviewed and Boris Becker, <laughs> his tongue would go to what side he was going to serve to. Interesting. And so Andre, who's one of the, you know, the accolades is he's one of the best return of servers in the game. So he got all the tells from all the players. Right. And it was just like interesting, like that small little tell made the difference. And he didn't tell anyone. I mean,
1: if we're, well, I guess Julian's tell was sending me front left because he sent me there all the time. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I was trying to get out of that corner. Yeah, he didn't have too many tells. I mean, we, but you know, I feel while I was always kind of second, I was never the guy. I always felt really honored to be a part of that kind of trio at the time. And, you know, I kind of wish Ryan Donegan was in that group as well because he was with us yeah. in Cuenca. And, you know, Ryan was a great guy, too. And, and he was a guy that he was older than me and looked up to. And he put that time and he put that effort in. And I mean, that team was pretty good. That team that went to Cuenca. I mean, I was solid you know, playing four on that team and I, I was happy playing four. I was like, oh, you guys need me? You just let me know. Call me in. If the courts, you know, remember, the courts weren't even finished when we got down there.
0: So we didn't even know if it was going to happen. I love it. So a little bit talking about the pipeline. And what's interesting, I think you were already doing this job without even the system in place. And what I mean by that was Todd Harrity, you know, it was really hard to get that infusion of top juniors or top college players participating in in national championships. You know, the SL Greens, what I'm talking about. But Mm -hmm. Todd told me the reason why he played this first year was because you texted him or you asked him to come.
2: I think, yeah, at the time, we were looking to
1: see who Dylan Murray is of the world. Todd Harities. There was a kind of like, you could call Chris, Julian, I, the three amigos at the time, just because we were the three guys that were kind of getting picked on a daily basis, but we didn't really know who was going to be that fourth, you know? And I feel in my mind, it's always good to build competition because it keeps you on your toes and you don't want your spot because it's just given to you You want your spot because it's earned and and you were in that top three, right? But I think at the same time, you always have to look at the future and what the future holds. And if you're a coach building a team, you have the present, but you always need to look to the future because if you plan on being at some place for a while, you want to sustain where you are, but also continue to grow it. And I think in the back of my mind, I was always—and I wish I hadn't done this. This is something that I regret: is always planning for the future for myself. And so I looked too early about my exit strategy. Instead of, um, I remember saying you were saying on one of your earlier podcasts, you know, where you're, you're kind of peaking at that twenty-six to thirty-one age group. And to be honest, I did peak. At that age, but I did it at the World Team Championships when I wasn't even playing on the tour, mm. right? And so, so one of my regrets is kind of looking at my exit strategy too early, and that's from societal pressures and no one saying that I had to stop, but me thinking that I had to. Yeah. So me reaching out to Todd was just—I mean—you you see this incredibly talented player, like why is he not part of it? Yeah. You know, and that's and being also from Philly, I remember us traveling home from germany together and at the world teams and he um he played incredibly well he had to step in for me when i injured my back after the second match and i said listen man you got to give this a go you have to like you are way too talented to not do this and todd's very unassuming and but you know, he's not arrogant in, in any stretch of the imagination but is one of the most talented people i've ever seen and so i'm happy that he stuck with it and I guess reaching out, was it's the right thing to do, right? You know, it's the right thing to do to push things forward. And then I was so happy that he, Chris, and, you know, we, we never got a chance to win that Pan Am team medal. And then so for for Todd, Chris, and Andrew to win that just is awesome. You know, it's just, it's the coolest thing in the world. And I'm so happy for them. And I'm so happy for Todd and Chris that they won the doubles too. You know, it's,
0: yeah, it's amazing. So what I'm kind of pointing towards is you were already ahead of the curve with no title but just looking out for Team USA and trying to build the future. And you were doing that with no real system in place. However, you're now part of something that's really cool. And I'm sure you would have wished that this system and this program was in place. And I want you to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, the the Academy program is pretty awesome. It's, for those who don't know, it was actually started, you know, officially by Rich Wade. Uh, Rich Wade was one of the, when he was at US Squash, he's now at Philadelphia Career Club. It's one of the brainchilds of this is is to really uh, put together a program for the the college student athletes that are looking to play professional squash. And, and what we did was I was fortunate enough to be a part of it and asked to be a part of it. And it was basically talking about how you transition from playing in college to then being a pro. And I think I was doing it kind of figuring it out until I kind of moved to Holland and, and had Tommy Burden looking after me and, and showing me how to kind of manage my career and and the tournaments that I picked and everything like that, well, we kind of put that all into practice. And for the last couple of summers, it's been an, an incredible environment to have hopeful future Team USA players, you know, training all together, breaking down the, the barriers of what colleges they go to and making them realize, hey, we all need each other and we all need to push for each other and we all need to support each other. And from that, I've had some amazing relationships being at, that were built from that. and. You know, I think everyone saw me as the pen coach, and the first thing they're thinking of is like, is this guy gonna screw with my game? You know, because of the competitive aspect. And that's kind of the first thing I said is like, hey, listen, I don't care what school you guys go to, I'm gonna be a resource for you uh, going forward. And I still have conversations with those players today, and it's some of the best conversations that I have. But I was fortunate enough to get brought back into junior national team coaching by Adam Hamill. He kind of I begged to be on his staff for the junior worlds, like begged him. And just followed him and then obviously working with him and then working with rich and going through that process to be able to kind of put something officially together um i think is great for our future for future players and then obviously it's a great uh mechanism to tell them that they can play pro and it is there is a future there and they can make a career out of it and, and go after maybe their dream you know to, to go play and be a professional athlete so to have that is it's incredible and listen you know you can I think at one point in my life, I was always bitter because we didn't have those things, you know, when I played. And, but at the same time, I think you need to realize that, okay, maybe they didn't have it. You didn't have that when you were playing, but you need, you, you have a responsibility to make it better That you should leave anything in a better place than you left it. Right. And so now there's funding for the players and I, and I think there's a good platform for them to have
0: support and have success. Well, you have firsthand knowledge of what was missing. And I think that gives you key insights into what players need, and then you can build that system from there. And I think funding is definitely, it's a component. I mean, look, we all have to pay bills. And it's a challenge I know right now with U.S. Squash that many people impacted by COVID, it's, uh, U.S. Squash is no exception. And in every touch point in the organization, it's going through a struggle and, and Team USA is also experiencing that too. So you know, it's interesting, as we look towards reopening and rebuilding, it's still mindful of how to keep those athletes engaged, healthy. And uh, I think there's definitely financial aspects that we need to be aware of. And
1: I mean, I think I think as well, but if you're playing squash, there's got to be more of an intrinsic motivation to succeed. And it can't and,
0: 100%. But you can't have ultimately, for success, it's a lot of times it's removing friction, right? And so if you sure. can't, it's hard to be, you know, a bus boy and then trying to compete for Team USA. 100%. 100%.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and and
1: I think what US Squash has done a great job of developing is they're putting the platform together for you to be able to be a Squash player.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: And so that's great. And, 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 and I want all of these players to go out and have extreme success. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things, at least the women are doing an unbelievable job. I mean, I can't wait to see the next Women's World teams and how... Team USA does because I think they have an unbelievable opportunity to to make the semis to make the finals and really push the world's best and on the guy side like for years it was like oh you were the second highest American ranked, and I was like well that's totally outdated now and I hope it gets to the point where you know it'd be amazing you know if I was the 49th highest ranked because everyone came before me you know or, or past me and so but that's the goal right you want to set you want to keep pushing everyone else to be better and learn from my mistakes and then use that to be successful in the future.
0: Well, before we go on to the quickfire segment of uh, this interview, as we're talking about future plans, and I know that your main focus these days is Penn Squash, your team, everything that you're doing there. But when you and I were talking, you got a degree in, was it organizational? Dynamics, yeah. Organizational Dynamics. And uh, was that from Penn or? From Penn, yeah. And so you know, I think that you're probably going to, you're deploying that now against your team, but do you have any kind of, you know, down the line future plans that you're thinking of? Yeah. I mean, I was,
1: so I got my master's in organizational dynamics program and concentrating in management and leadership, um, wrote my thesis on managing cultural diversity within sports organizations. And so, Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the professors. Really enjoyed learning from my classmates. And they're all working professionals, really. So that was great to hear their stories of how they interact and how they manage problems within the workplace. And it's something that, as I read a lot of books and and listen to a lot of podcasts on leadership and culture. How big was the class? So some of the classes, the biggest classes were probably only 10 to 12 people. And
0: what about the cohort?
1: The cohort, it wasn't big. I mean, there's probably around, I would say, 70
0: students in the program. And so a lot of attention, a lot of one-on-one, which is really great. My wife also got her master's degree at Penn and uh, it was in Master in Applied Positive Psychology and- Great program. Yeah, it really is, it's a one-year program, which I think is a really, allows working professionals to really budget that into their uh, careers. For sure. Uh, but For many, uh, you know, time-wise plus uh, financially, but it was a cohort of around 40 or 50. Yeah. And it was so thoughtfully done. For and sure. so I imagine you kind of had that similar experience. So what would that potentially look like if you're setting a...
1: I would love to do, you know, obviously Penn, the job that I'm at right now is the one I think I was supposed to be at, you know, in, in my life. And I love it so much. Uh, I love the people. I've, I've said that before. I would love to use this degree, though, and and, and do some, some leadership talks and training and go in and talk to high schools and talk to captains of super sport teams about how to be a leader. What does leadership look like? What are the different styles of leadership? And I think when I grew up, there was one way to look at it. But there are so many different types of leaders and so many different types of ways you can lead. And there's different groups that you're trying to lead. And so we always were thinking sometimes in on a smaller scale when we need to really think outside the box. And I think leadership training is incredibly important. It's an incredibly important skill to even if you're not a natural born leader, I think to understand how, and I, I'm saying leader with quote quotation marks, but like understanding how leaders in your organization communicate might help you do your job more effectively and not take things so personally and maybe then bounce ideas back in order to, um, to create a successful culture within your organization. And that's something that I would love to do is something that I you know, continue to examine how organizations function, examine the communication between employees and group, and how do leaders pick the people that are part of their group and why. And that question you talked about why earlier in the podcast, why do we do things? And that's always interested me and it was a great program to be a part
0: of and it's definitely made me a better coach for sure. This is an area of interest that is high on my end too. And so I would love to probably do your program. And I haven't had a a chance to kind of really dedicate that time. But leadership is, you know, a core pillar, I think, to everyone. And I think there's two parts, because I think you're right that there are these assumptions or conventions of what a leader is. And I think this opportunity to be able to disseminate information is really breaking those barriers. However, that doesn't mean it's not hard to then try and find it. And I think the two parts for me that really have resonated deeply with me are uh, being an authentic leader, that means find your style. And then also situational leadership, meaning like, you know, I have a certain domain expertise. Yeah. But if I'm in a healthcare environment, I'm not the leader there. So it's like, what do I need to do in order to understand? And it might be following. And I yeah. think that's also the thing with the leadership is knowing both when to lead, to help motivate and push people, but also then when do we need to follow? For sure.
1: I think we actually had a talk at Penn, you know, following no one would ever say that following is a type of leadership and, and is important. And sometimes, you know, I think every week we get told and in TV and things, however, we're presented leadership, it's the person in front. Well, sometimes you can be a follower and be the person that's going, you know, helping someone else go in that direction. And And that's sometimes taking a step back is actually the best step for the group. And so every individual needs to realize like, okay, where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? you know where can i contribute the most and and how can i contribute the most and and that's that's for any organization
0: i think that's a really good last word to leave it on so we're going to we're going to switch into uh, the quick fire with gilly lane like many of the listeners hopefully they're starting to get a sense that this is broken into two parts one is uh, about the squash aspect since this is squash radio we probably should talk a little bit about squash and the other part is just some other questions i ask a lot of guests in order to get them know better and I, I love both sections for different reasons. But we're going to go in. We're going to do kind of like a 90-second drill. You don't have to take the 90 it. seconds. I love there's it. No, there's no penalty if you go over. But the way that I'm going to kind of structure it is in each area of the this, uh, sport this of squash, I want to get, you can pick either or, or both, an area that you love about that aspect or that area, and then something that you wish would be improved. And so we're going to wow. start off at the top of the pyramid with professional squash. Go. Love it. What do you love about it?
1: I think right now the athletes,
0: the players playing are just incredible.
1: I think the game has is just getting pushed. It's moving forward and forward and forward. You know, the women's game has never been more competitive. The athletes are incredible. I love watching all of them play the different styles of play. The men's game, it's just, I mean, it's just the rivalries right now. I mean, Farag versus Shabagi. And then you have, you know, Dasuki winning the last tournament and that Paul Cole kind of challenging all of Egypt for supremacy. And I think the association has done a really good job. The marketing just gets better and better. PSA Squash TV is just is incredible platform to watch. Joey does a great job. And compared to when I played, it's night and day. The The one thing I guess right now with COVID, obviously we don't have as many events, and but I think they've done a really good job. What we need to continue to do or they need to continue to do is to support the players that are trying to come through and so that we have a great future for the sport and really build up the challenger tour and, and things like that to give younger professional athletes the platform to move forward. And, and I know that they are trying to do that. And, and that's one of the biggest things that I would I would say that we, they need to continue to do. But I know they're doing a good job on that. But I think the game's in a great place. And, and watching the last couple of tournaments have been awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that is, you know, it's tough for organizations. They don't always move at the speed that players want or sure. the fans want. But what I can say is that, and US squash is no exception to this, but PSA is also just such a leadership entity in the ecosystem is each step is forward. for sure. And I think we're humans, we have a challenge of exponential math or th- line of thinking, and it's more linear. And it's, if we look back, just like you painted a picture, it's there's been exponential growth in this area. And for sure. it's going to just keep going. So the next section is college squash. And I'm not quite sure how to, You're so involved in this, right? It's going to be hard, like what hat to wear. So I think pick a hat and then talk about what you love about it and what you want to see improved. It's a really hard question
1: because I do have many hats. So coming at it from a coach's angle, what I love about it is the kids, the student athletes that I get to work with every day. Having COVID and being away from the team has definitely made me realize how lucky and fortunate I am to get to work with who I work with on a daily basis. And so that's one of the great things I would say thing that we need to work on is we need to continue to add more teams. We need to continue to build our brand and we need to continue to give as many student athletes, the opportunity to play at the collegiate level in a varsity program. And so we, as an organization need to continue to sell our product to other universities to build what I think is a great sport for life and provide opportunity for all the students that are playing squash to have the opportunity to compete for a university or a college and represent the alumni and the students that attend that university or college.
0: Couldn't agree more. And it's a tough path. And uh, I'll give a quick story because it's, like I said, I played at Denison and and we were a club team. And so it's been a 25-year journey to get varsity status. Right. And our launching season was in COVID. So I think we're no exception. And I think of each team that is, I really feel for The freshmen coming in and the seniors going out just because, you know, the juniors and the sophomores, it's just as bad for them too, but they already have a norm and they're already going to have another year. Right? And yeah, I feel for them, but it's, it's a long path. And I think adding more teams is just a great answer. Shifting gears into junior squash. I love what we've done as a
1: country in terms of looking to expand our platform and providing there are a lot of tournaments and there's a lot of opportunity. At the same time, it's a two-edged, double-edged sword. We need to provide more opportunity and we need to open up the game to the public. We need to get away from the stigma of what our sport was and what it, you know, in in the private kind of private club kind of connotation that comes with it. And we need to expand the game and, and bring the game to more people that don't have access. And when we are able to do that, I think our sport will just really just it will skyrocket and will continue to grow and we'll have great growth and we'll have great press in the in the community and by by press I don't mean news I don't be mean news clippings or anything like that I mean people be talking about the game in in a positive light and trying to shed the elitist sport mentality of that the one thing I will say and again going back to the positive is that you know the coaches that are here are doing a great job of training the junior squash players and making them some of the best players in the world. And and that wasn't the case when I was a junior. So a lot of credit goes to them and US Squash for the way in which they've set things up. And and but again, we need to provide more access to people who don't have access to the sport and continue to grow and continue to grow the game that way.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting segue into the next topic of grassroots. And I guess I'm gonna phrase this slightly differently where what would be a tactical way to try and get rubber hitting road for grassroots growth?
1: It's gonna take people to I have so much respect for the people that started all the programs and Urban Squash, right? And it takes people though, it takes gonna take coaches and it's gonna take I think coaches to to step out of their comfort zone and really go to build something and to really start from from scratch and but have that idea of building that culture and building that organization that we talked about this entire podcast of they have the idea that they want to create something. And um, we need more creators, I think, than just doers, if that makes sense. Uh, we need more people that take on that responsibility and make that their life's work. The Greg Zaps of the world. And these programs are incredible. However, we need to provide them with more courts and more opportunities to hit squash balls and give them the opportunity to not just hit for 45 minutes a day, but for an hour and a half and and open things up and so it's going to take a lot of people with that desire to work and work for not a lot of money but really invest their heart and soul into it and and I truly believe when people invest their heart and soul into anything that they can do that they can accomplish anything
0: really well said and I think I'll the only thing I'll add on to that is something you're already doing so well at Penn in terms of like we got to build teams and I think it's easy to think about the squash growth as a sport for me I kind of had this epiphany at U.S. Squash, so about uh, six years ago, I was like, ah, we're talking about real estate. (laughs) This is a real estate play in terms of what are the teams that we need to bring together? Because if we build courts, then we need the systems in place that once they're there, it's bringing in the coaches. And coaches are, I think, leaders in communities and can inspire. But also there's an, we have to recognize that, and to your point, again, using what the words you said was, you don't have to be good at everything. You may not be able to write emails, but you know what? If you can't write emails, your program isn't going to be as successful as someone that you hire someone or bring in a team member or a community member to help write your communications. So it's a really complex issue, but we need to boil it down. For sure. For sure. Yeah, The last question I was going to say is desired future plans for the sport, but I think we might have just answered it. I don't yeah, know. it's just to to grow it. I think um,
1: we need to look at, see internally how we all can help and make a difference. What we're doing, we need to kind of self-reflect. I know you guys spent spent some time on the Olympics and I know the Olympics is the goal, but I think in order to get to that goal, we need to kind of work on ourselves a little bit more so that we're in a place where we can get there instead of let's get there and then figure it out on the back end.
0: I think in terms of process versus outcome, I think we've been looking for the Olympics to be. target and i think let's adjust it like we want growth and we want it to go and if we happen to get into the olympics that will be a deal breaker and it'll be a huge achievement but we're already not in the sport and we're still doing everything that we're doing so let's let's increase this but i also just think we need to
1: increase our participation and who's playing the game and and if we do that then then we'll be in a great spot and but we'll made the game better already by doing that you know
0: yeah one thing I think I've been, I've said a few times that I'm trying to encourage more is, and this was, I mean, truth be told, Gilly, I'll give you the credit, is just asking, bringing someone new onto the court. So bring five new people onto a court in one year. That's it. it doesn't have to, you know, that's once every other month. Just bring someone and expose them to the sport because I don't think we get the exposure opportunity always. And people want to play with people that they have fun with. So 100%. All right, we're going to switch into the, um, the non-squash version of Quickfire. Or portion, and we're going to start off with just kind of an easy one. Of do you have a favorite documentary or movie? Well, movie's Hoosiers.
1: I mean, the best movie of all time. Gene Hackman, what a legend! it's all about team uh, Indiana. You know, Indiana high school basketball story. I did make the guys on the team watch it once, and I don't think they liked it as much as me. <laughs> so, I think we changed it after forty-five minutes. Documentary in terms of sports. I mean, the Jordan documentary was insane. It was so good. And I know Janet Hansen had just talked about that. She loved that. But I'm not trying to steal her answer, but it was so good. I think Jordan's answers were incredibly truthful. And the guy, the reason why he's so good is just so cutthroat. But just he takes things and he wants to do them and he says, I'm going to do them and he doesn't. And and I loved hearing the just the truthful answers. Um, some of them are hard truths to take, right? But Love that documentary, sports documentary. And then, you know, the all lands on, as much as I'm a Liverpool fan, but the all or nothing uh, Manchester City on Amazon Prime was incredible. And I'm a huge soccer fan and that was incredible.
0: Yeah, it was masterfully done. The cinematography in that, the HD quality, just really, it compounded everything that they were saying. And it also showed the entire story arc, but also then broke down the individual contributions that each player does for the team. Yeah. Incredible. So well done. All right, the next question is, and I, I can't wait, <laughs> I'm curious what your answer is here. What gets you fired up? And this can be in Squash World or not, and it can either be zero to 100 positively or something, you know, you're like, oh, that bothers me, and then it drives you to action. So what fires Gilly Lane up? I think I mentioned this earlier, I just people
1: telling me that I can't do anything. And I think, oh, you can't achieve this, or not getting something that I want to go after and then just putting a gigantic
0: chip on the shoulder and and saying I'm going to do it. So I'm going to ask a follow up to that because I think a lot of your career is documented, right? And so what's the example that isn't out there that maybe your friends, your family know that you were told you couldn't do something that you did? And it could be something arbitrary like origami for all I care. I'm just curious because you can deploy that same mentality towards anything. Is there anything that comes to mind? I mean,
1: squash wise, it's pretty easy. It's just basically like when I turned pro, a lot of people said that that was a mistake. And they said, what are you doing? Like you're not good enough to make it. And so my whole thing was just proving all those people wrong, you know, not getting a couple of jobs that I thought I was going to get. And so then I changed that into, you know, okay, well, I'm going to prove it to you. In terms of outside of squash, I mean, you know, it's funny, I I would I'm pretty useless when it comes to like <laughs> like i don't know building anything or anything like that so i can't really say that as like oh i'm going to do that because i've just obviously i've been so focused on my professional career and things like that but i i think it's just i know you wanted a juicy
0: answer but i think it's more it doesn't have to be juicy i mean i've i've got one so then let me give you mine okay and cuz i'm i'm wired somewhat similarly and it's more i actually don't need even I don't know how I respond if externally someone told me. But internally, you kind of have a gut. You're like, I don't like not being good at this. And yep. uh, one of them, it was pretty young, was juggling. <laughs> wow. And, you know, 14, 15. And so it was interesting at an early age, I can point back to like, that's how I did it. So I couldn't juggle. I saw someone juggle. I was confused. They tried to explain this to me and I didn't do it. Literally, I go out and this is VHS. So I had to right. go buy VHS. Old school. It, Get, get This is old school. VHS, go get like a, a juggling kit. And I was just in my room. Boom. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think I, I th- that was kind of like, I think anything in sport for me growing up. But it's really when people say I can't do something, it's just, okay, well, let's go and do it. Especially with the team or, you know, you just got to, I would call myself a fighter in that regard.
0: I like it. All right. And the next question is, what is something like physical, like a, a gadget, or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness. And the caveat I'm going to give here, just to make sure, is I think family, friends, pets are just like, that's what we live for, right? So for sure. Just trying to find what is that non obvious thing that someone might be curious to try. So what brings you disproportionate happiness?
1: You know, I would say cooking actually is calming. I like to cook now. I mean, and I'm getting more and more into cooking and the creativity of cooking. One of my best friends is, Joe Rejo from Tufts. And we went to school together and he was actually a chef in New York. And one of my favorite shows on Netflix is Chef's Table. And love Chef's Table. And so cooking and cooking from scratch and how you create that. But then also the environment that cooking kind of create is a social gathering, in which I love what they do in Europe is that they sit down and they eat and they eat for a long time and the tv's not on and your phones aren't on and you just talk and you eat and that's all created around food so i've I've recently been getting into a lot of food stuff because i think the creativity and and how chefs kind of work is really fascinating you know you can kind of think about that and then obviously think about coaching and the team that they have around them and the team that you have around yourself and, and how they go about creating something special and something that's very unique and Something that creates a lot of joy and happiness for a lot of people. So,
0: love that answer. And I don't know if you know this about me, but like that's my thing too. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind
1: of guess because considering how, how well I know you is there's a reason we hit it off in, in
0: 2007. So I mean, but I don't think we knew that about each other. So that's awesome. And Joey Rayo, shout out to his Instagram because what I loved was you could tell quickly like oh this this guy's got chops. He he was un- insane. But on his Instagram, he was like showing like, here's all the ingredients and then here's the sequencing to go through and here's the final product. And so Joey, people, uh, it was inspiring. And one of the things I do love about cooking for me is like so many of the things we work on, we we don't see the results for a long period of time. Instantaneously, right? It's either good or it's bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, it is it is kind of like a process, right? Like, I mean, you're building a team and like you won't get the the results in until like the end of the season. Like here, I'm like, all right, one or two hours, let me get this done and then immediate sure. feedback. So, question, what would be if I was coming over or you know side by side, what would be your dish that you like you put on the table?
1: Well, I'll tell you what we had for New Year's, which was incredible. So, Joe was actually down, and so we had um you know, obviously salad to start. We we had sweet potato with brown butter, chopped up uh, apple slices over top. We did surf and turf, so we had lobster and then And then we did steak with bacon wrapped around it. And so, uh, and we had a nice like little like uh, citrusy salad that kind of cleansed the palate at the end. So that was a pretty amazing meal to kind of kick the year off. And Joe crushed it. We're a big seafood family here. So anything with fish, we love crab. We spend a lot of time at the shore in the summer. So seafood is always a go. And then obviously steak is, steak is, love steak, you know, and cooked rare, by the way. Like, let's get the taste. Like, no, none of this over, you know, well done stuff, you know, with a little, you know. I mean rare, rare? Like, what's the color we're looking at here? We can say medium rare, but I would venture to the rare side, not like well done. Like purple? No, red. Okay. Not purple. Not still mooing, but like seared on both sides and give it about three or four minutes.
0: I mean, I'd, I am doing plant-based right now, but I still love all different kinds of Food and ingredients and cuisines, but one of the ones I'm glad, like I kind of know how to do, is um, a ribeye. That was like, you know, you Probably. want a good, you want a good thickness on this guy. But I do the reverse sear approach, so you know, two fifty in the oven for about yep. twenty eight to thirty two minutes, and then you get a piping hot cast iron, and then both sides, and that gets the perfect. I'm now working on my cast iron game. Is actually, oh,
1: I yeah. legit read was looking at a cookbook of cast iron cooking the other night. So
0: that's kind of my next. My next cast iron there. is definitely where it's at. Definitely geeking out right now. But look into the le creuset, but get the one that you put in the oven. Yeah, I actually I have that. Like the the flat? No, the flat.
1: Oh, not the flat one.
0: Yeah, look at the flat one. So it replaces a baking tray, and so it's a, it's easier to clean, but b when, like, especially for vegetables, it just gets, you get it hot first, and then it just gets that extra crisp when you put it down. Love it. Gotta try it. We'll nerd out about this uh, some more because I'm definitely an equipment. I make sure my gear is on point. I like it. The next question is, and this is, I can imagine going to be somewhat of a challenge for you. So I'll give you a little bit of leeway because, but here's the, the setup. TED Talks, right? Yep. All right, so the scenario is you're going to give a TED Talk, but it can't be something that you're publicly known for. So what would you talk about? Now, you could also go a different route with like, hey, what might you be interested to go explore that you haven't had time to, and then you would give a TED Talk about. So kind of a couple of different ways you can give it because you're publicly known, Gilly. You know, that's it's tough for you.
1: I would say it would be um, doing impressions, but I think people know that oh. I do impressions. So I just... I. I don't know if that would be something that you
0: teach. Gosh, this is a really hard question. Well, let's play with that for a hot second. So you're going to do impressions. And I mean, you got to break it down. Like, how do you practice impressions? Like, you have some talent. I know that. But then how do you get the ear? How do you? I've always, I just, I, for some reason, I've always had this sense of, any
1: accent or lines off movies or movie quotes that I've always managed to do, and my family always jokes that I don't have an original thought because everything's a movie quote. And they joke, but maybe it's kind of true now that I'm 35 years old and still doing it. So the TED talk—I mean, obviously, my first thing would be talking about leadership and managing teams, right? And it, that would be that would be it. But something that I don't—that you know, people don't know about me.
0: God, what? Well, let's stay with impressions. So, what's the hardest accent for you to do?
1: I think they're all hard because y- you want to get them right, and you want to you want to be true to, and you want to make sure that the the accent, one, it, it's good, two, that it's not you know offending anyone. Yeah, and that's big because you don't want to offend anyone, and 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 three, you want to have fun with it, right? And so testing it out and and practicing over and over again is kind of like you practicing your juggling, right? You got to keep going until you do it. But some people know, have, have heard it. Some people haven't. And I'll let the people who have heard it keep it to themselves. And, and the people who haven't, they won't hear
0: it. So. I agree. I think each accent presents different challenges. And 100%. I think being exposed to both the someone saying it, like their native tongue, but also the other part is the culture in terms of sequencing of how you say certain things, right? Like in For English, sure. which you spend a lot of time in, right? You wouldn't say 5.30, it's half five, right? And so it's, you have to understand the kind of... I wouldn't put things in the trunk, i put them in the boot. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But one that I always really wanted to try and get that is continues to be the hardest is the South African, because I just, I love that accent, and it's really hard to do.
1: Yeah, Jesse's, you know, you had Jesse on the show, and obviously, he's got a pretty strong one. I know he's from Zim originally.
0: Right. Well, how about this? I think, because we know Jesse, and you probably know him better than I do, but... What was a saying that he said that you liked and trying?
1: Just he'd always Aussie China, you know, Aussie China, yeah, I like you it. know, something like that. And, and it was, Jesse actually stayed at my house and in, in the summer, so I know Jesse very well. Um, <laughs> but you know, that was didn't really know what China meant, you know, before <laughs> before he started staying with us. But then obviously heard it more. So what does it mean? Like, how's it going? My like, my man. Like, what's you know, how you doing? Like, lad. It could be like lad.
0: Got it. What's the expression with brew? Hey, brew?
1: I don't know. No? I don't know how, what, you know, I think that would, brew would be like mate, right? I guess. That's yeah. what I would think.
0: But I, I could be totally wrong, so I don't. No, I think that's how I've heard it too, and I just I wasn't quite sure when to use it or not. But anyway. So the last question that's coming up, and I, again, thank you so much for your time, Gil. You've been so generous here with us. What would be, and this is going to be a challenge for you because of the extent that you've done, where I'm going is like, what's a podcast or a book that you would recommend? And, you know, trying, um, I think there's a ton that you would do, but what stands out leaps and balance for someone to go read tomorrow or a podcast?
1: Podcast, high performance podcast with Jake Humphrey. It's an English based podcast it's about high performers. And I really loved it. I, I listen to it a lot when I, when I walk my dog, it's, um, they're longer. At- Was there a
0: key insight that you've kind of Learned that really helped.
1: I think it's the transparency of high performing athletes that they, or and high performing people uh, that things aren't always as great as they seem on the outside. We all have stuff that we're dealing with internally that we could be fighting. And with Twitter, Facebook, social media, Instagram, we're all putting on a perception sometimes of who we want to be, but what we're not. And all these people have been very successful in their careers. They they reflect on that, and it's been something that's been great to listen to. In terms of books, I mean, I love Grit by Angela Duckworth. Listen to that on book on tape in the car because I have like a thirty minute drive each way to work. Obviously, she's a pen professor, so I have to. I was going to add a
0: chat out there. All right, yeah. I
1: have to, but it, but it, I mean, it speaks to kind of being the person that's being a fighter, being the person that's resilient having that discipline, having that resiliency and using that on a daily basis. And, and one of the biggest things is, you know, I always say is chase after your dreams, go after them as hard as you can, no matter how hard it is. And if you do that, you'll find the success, whether it's from winning or you'll find the internal gratitude of, of, of doing it and,
0: and, you know, feel good about yourself. Her book was also one of the key sparks for my wife to pursue um, positive psychology. Yeah, exactly. And she's one of the teachers there. So yeah. And she is remarkable and she's hitting the nail on the head or the ball out of the park. Pick an analogy that you like. For sure. She's crushing it. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, thank you, Gilly. This is a, a long time coming. And that's, like I said, you're on my list. Such a pleasure to get this. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to you every time we talk. And to have one of these on the record is just such a pleasure for me and an honor. And, you know, I think our connection is is multifaceted, but certainly the bond with Team USA and the red, white, and blue, I think. You know, and, and I feel very connected to it, even though I didn't, I never got called up. I tried to make the team wasn't even close in the, t- the top 10, top 20 even. But, you know, to have played a part of it is an honor. And it's really because of guys like you and the other women and coming through the pipeline. So thank you.
1: Well, we appreciate you, man. I appreciate you a ton and, and everything that you did for me when I was starting and just what you're doing now to promote our game talk about it but also the support that you gave us uh, you know especially me when i was 20 21 years old and just starting out it was um, great to have you on our team in terms of and, and i talk about team i talk about team usa but also my team that was you know people that i knew i could count on and trust so it was a pleasure being on and i can't wait to um,
0: see squash radio just get bigger and bigger so. <laughs> well i appreciate it man all right well till next time all right thanks connor Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves Squash? that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.